patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, civility, the values that define America. Fascinating stories and talks from America-loving patriots dedicate to preserving freedom, opportunity, and justice. Welcome to the Friends and Fellow Citizens Podcast. everybody and welcome to episode 75 of Friends and Fellow Citizens. I'm your host Sherman Tylowski. Thank you so much for joining us in our first 2022 Sacred Honor Series episode. Whether you're a new listener or have been a listener since episode one, Friends and Fellow Citizens is very much focused on expanding relationship between the program and the listeners and not just expanding listenership. That is why over the next several months, Friends of Fellow Citizens is poised to release its first ever merchandise store for the podcast. This will be a great hub for people who want to have a tangible side of the program, to be able to keep that tangible product at home, at school, at work, or wherever listeners enjoy Friends of Fellow Citizens. By clicking on the Patreon link in the show notes below, you can take a look and see our newest updated chart about the three membership levels and the benefits they offer. Benefits include giveaways to members, Q&A opportunities, announcements about interview episodes that we do outside of Friends and Fellow Citizens, and so much more. Thank you all so much in advance, and I hope you will join us. In the last episode of the Sacred Honor series, we covered... Elbridge Gary, who was a member of the Massachusetts delegation. This week, we are covering Stephen Hopkins, who is the first of the two members from the Rhode Island delegation. Hopkins was born in 1707 to a prominent Rhode Island family. He was interested in the sciences early on. He loved astronomy. He used to do his own surveying, own experiments, as well as just an interest in academic subjects and really just the pursuit of knowledge in general. Early on in Rhode Island, he served on a number of local government positions, and he really made a name for himself as a prominent Rhode Island politician, uh, someone who not only knew the politics side of things, but also knew a lot about the industry, about what Rhode Island was concerned about with the issues it faced regarding trade, security, and all other matters. He ultimately served as governor four times for the colony of Rhode Island. He was also a chief justice at the Rhode Island Supreme Court at one point in his career. One of the prominent features of the Sacred Honor series both in my findings as well as the episodes that we've done already, is that the revolutionaries and the signers didn't always have that same amount of confidence in an independent America. Hopkins is considered an early revolutionary in my book. The reason why I say that is because he was already in the works and already contemplating about the possibility of the colonies drifting away from Great Britain and forming their own government. Now, that government wasn't necessarily conceived as its own as the United States government, 
but it certainly laid the foundation for the signing of the Declaration of Independence and ultimately the Articles of Confederation, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and all the other famous documents and leaders that would come after the American Revolutionary War. In 1754, Hopkins joins something called the Albany Congress. I'll take this time to briefly explain what it is and why it's relevant to Hopkins and ultimately the revolutionary cause. The Albany Congress was formed because there were a number of colonial representatives. Doesn't matter if they were ultimately loyalists or patriots, but at that time, this was in the midst of the... Seven Years' War and the French and Indian War that was still going on, these representatives were concerned about the amount of authority, or should say the limited authority, that was presented for the colonies with regards to creating relations and formal relations with the Native American tribes. This was probably out of concern for the disputes that often occurred during the war, clearly. It was also because, the as just like in any world, there's going to be colonies and representatives who are going to want some more say in how they run their respective government entities. And this conference is unique because this was really one of those early stages in the New World where the colonies had some kind of foundational idea for their own representation on more local matters. Clearly, when colonies are dealing with the Native American tribes, this is something that's much more local than an issue that affects you know, Westminster. And so this early idea starts coming along, but like I said earlier, it's not a loyalist or patriot divisive conference this is really that first attempt to realize what the role of the colonies were when it comes to governance. Governance really just in general for the British Empire, and more specifically in the New World. Hopkins is a delegate from the Rhode Island colony, and he he gets along with one man whom I think we're all familiar with, and he gets a lot of credit, and rightly so, and that is Benjamin Franklin. Ben Franklin attends this conference, and don't forget the year as well. This is 1754. To put that into some context, Washington was only 22 years old at the time. So Hopkins and Franklin had already been some very, very prominent politicians in the colonies at the time, and they were already getting involved in something like the Albany Congress. Well, in the end, the Albany Congress did not reach a, a final deal about how the colonies would have more say on the relationship between the colonies and the Native American tribes, but it really set that foundation for how Hopkins, Franklin, among others, began developing their arguments for more representation from the colonies. And this really evolved into something more serious later on. I'll explain this when we get to the writings of Stephen Hopkins. Fast forward to the 1760s, and we have something called the Sugar Act of 1764. This is one of the big, really controversial acts that Parliament passes to try and tax the colonies. Hopkins and many others are just absolutely furious at this. 
you can clearly understand why, because this tax on molasses, particularly on molasses that is manufactured in the colonies, eventually traded all around the empire, all around the world, this was going to seriously affect local industries. But it wasn't just the local industries that made molasses. As you can imagine, molasses and sugar are obviously very, very key staples. And this was clearly designed by the British to be able to excise a tax on a lot of goods, in part because of the nature of sugar as such a key ingredient in so many products. As a result of the Sugar Act, Hopkins writes a pamphlet called The Rights of Colonies Examined. I'm going to get to that a little bit later in the episode once I cover some of the other important events that happened in his time, and we'll take a bit of an examination on what he is saying and really how it relates to perhaps some of the things that we are facing nowadays. And that really is the crux of the Sacred Honor series, which is to take what happened and what the signers did and what others did at that time and applying those lessons to today. One major affair that occurs throughout all this chaos, we've already gone through the Boston Massacre, the Townsend Acts, Stamp Acts, certainly the Stamp Acts were, again, very, very controversial, very much hated by the colonists. We're going to fast forward here to 1772. This is about two years after the Boston Massacre, which already made both sides super-duper mad. Parliament had passed something called the Navigation Acts, which allowed the British Navy to conduct and enforce regulations, taxes, duties, inspections, and just anything they really wanted to do alongside the eastern seaboard. This was really very much a problem for American merchants, and especially enraged a lot of the patriots who were trying to basically just live their own lives. And not to mention that throughout this time, there was no representation from the colonies anyway. So this was really very much another imposition of power on the colonies without representation. And one time near a place called Gaspé Point in Warwick, Rhode Island, a British customs schooner named HMS Gaspé. And it was chasing this other boat called the Hannah. After a customs seizure and dispute, a group of men from Providence attacked this British schooner and it started very much like a big fight on the vessel. There were numerous arrests, really on both sides. It was just a huge kerfuffle. Um, and I'm not going to go too much into the details of this affair, but what eventually happened was that while there were recommendations for the prosecution and the search for these uh, Sons of Liberty, as a lot of these men were associated with Sons of Liberty, while there was a pursuit for their search, Chief Justice Stephen Hopkins made the disguise of pretending that he was very, very upset at what was happening and they had to uphold the law. He had another person to back him up on this. And so the perpetrators actually were able to escape without really any kind of effort from the colonial government of Rhode Island. And this really allowed the Sons of Liberty to be able to evade the law and to do whatever it is that they wanted to do about going after the British customs officials. 
It's also important to know that the British schooner Gaspé not only was attacked, but it was also burned down, which you can imagine was a very, very egregious act and something that both sides contended a lot. Even though as a result, uh, even with a royal commission set up, nothing actually happened afterwards. What did happen, though, is that when Chief Justice Hopkins was called to help weigh in on this case, he said, quote, No commander of any vessel has any right to use any authority in the body of the colony without previously applying to the governor and showing his warrant for so doing, unquote. So it was kind of like a shrug off the burning. He just said that this British schooner, with the customs officials and what they wanted to do, they, they couldn't enforce the Navigation Acts because they didn't have that permission from the governor of the Rhode Island colony. This ultimately became a part of the Declaration of Independence and the Arts of the Constitutional Convention, in part because there were all these discussions and debates about the role of government and its presence on intruding in other people's lives and not having a warrant and things like this, the writs of assistance, which is something that we mentioned a few episodes ago, uh, that essentially was like an excuse for the British to search anyone for any reason. These are these continue to be very, very sensitive issues. The ability and the legality for government to conduct searches based on existing laws. Hopkins became a very close ally of people like John Adams. I mentioned Benjamin Franklin. He still maintained that relationship with Franklin even after more than 20 years. This is pretty remarkable. With 1776 as that year, 22 years before, they were at that same Albany Congress. And so they've already had that experience of concocting ideas of imagining what independence could look like, what authority means to the colonies. What does it mean to have a separation of the executive and the legislative branches? These kinds of experiences really helped Hopkins and Franklin a lot as they were more senior members of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. It's also worthy to note that with them being at such an old age, it is also very remarkable that they were able to be so clairvoyant and really perhaps give that confidence to some other younger signers to say that we've seen these kinds of discussions and conversations about the role of government when we were back in the Albany Congress. While I don't have any specifics about what those conversations were in that room about what people thought of Franklin's experience and what Hopkins' experience was, but you can probably imagine that those two men really used a lot of their experiences in politics to perhaps give their opinions on what Declaration of Independence should look like and what independence uh, should look like moving forward. Hopkins was placed in charge of the operations for the fledgling United States Navy because he knew so much about the shipping business. He knew the ins and outs, him working in politics, but also working with business leaders and other industries when he was governor. He really understood, certainly as the governor of a very maritime colony, Rhode Island, he was very much an expert on advising other committees and other members about naval affairs. His brother, 
Isaac Hopkins was appointed as the first commander-in-chief of the new Navy. For Hopkins' role in helping the cause for the Patriots and for the movement for independence, Hopkins signs the Declaration of Independence in 1776, along with his colleagues. He is the eighth signer of the Declaration of Independence. He actually had palsy on his right hand. One of my favorite quotes from him is that as he's signing with his right hand, he's using his left to help hold it. He says, my hand trembles, but my heart does not. Hopkins was a very clever political figure. He was chief justice three times earlier. He was governor four times. He probably could have gone a lot longer had his health been better. But he was 68 years old, and he was the second oldest signer behind Benjamin Franklin. As such, in September of 1776, he left the Continental Congress and decided to support a new educational institution in his home colony of Rhode Island. Through his backing and the backing of other religious members and other political figures, he became the first chancellor of what is now known as Brown University. Perhaps some of you out there know someone who's attended Brown, or perhaps are Brown University graduates yourselves. You can certainly thank people like Stephen Hopkins for helping establish your alma mater or an alma mater of someone you know. Before we get to Hopkins' pamphlets, I'd like to share a little story with all of you about the Declaration of Independence draft deliberations. One time on July 1st, 1776, Hopkins is sitting and listening to a man named John Dickinson who was advocating for why they should not vote for independence. And as Hopkins is kind of drifting off, because it's certainly what happens when someone like Dickinson or someone else talks for a very long time and uh, let's just say that people want to have a siesta here and then. Uh, and what happens is that there was a thunderstorm outside, and all of a sudden, Dickinson's talk is interrupted by this loud thunderclap, and it just scares everybody, and especially Hopkins. He's just like, oh my gosh, Jesus. And uh, he drops his cane on the floor, and a man named John Penn of North Carolina was concerned that the, uh, Hopkins had just been too scared. So he leans over Hopkins' shoulder, and he tells him, saying, no, there's, don't worry, There's we have a rod on top of the statehouse, which was one of Benjamin Franklin's inventions. He said, don't worry, it's just, just thunder. And <laughs> Hopkins turns to him and says, I don't give a damn about any rod or lightning bolt. I'm just tired of Dickinson's long-winded harangue. <laughs> Yeah, he probably was speaking more than just for himself uh, to Dickinson's offense, I'm sure. But uh, th- that's just a quick little funny story. And uh, I I guess he was half kidding, but half serious too, because uh, th- there were some people, probably including John Adams and Ben Franklin, who probably wanted to do something else other than listening to John Dickinson talk, especially against independence. (laughs) 
Well, now let's get to our pamphlets that Hopkins wrote, which is called The Rights of Colonies Examined. And rather than reading the whole thing, it's a little long, but I've compiled with some of those major points that he made throughout that writing. Now, the first is that he argues that colonies have historically been an extension of the mother country, not as an inferior addition. And what he means is that colonists, by risking their lives and livelihoods to live somewhere else, uh, they should enjoy freedoms as much as the mother country citizens. And he's saying that, yes, they're living in different parts of the world, but they follow the same laws of the same government. They've perhaps culturally come from the same place. He uses examples from ancient Greece and ancient Rome to explain how when those city-states eventually grew, when the empires grew, they were not treated as second-class citizens. He's really speaking about the colonists and those who lived in faraway lands. He even references some other European powers, the Spanish and the French. And he's saying all this because... He wants to make it clear that this taxation that has been happening from Westminster is not treating citizens in the colonies the same as those who are living in Great Britain. He believes that for some reason, in recent years, Parliament has been imposing more restrictions on trade and stamp taxes and regulations. I mentioned the... HMS Schooner, that or the HMS Gaspe, the schooner that was going around telling people what to do, probably not very legal in a lot of senses. Yeah, he doesn't actually know why Parliament is all of a sudden doing this, but he clearly has seen a change. I do think that the benefit of Hopkins being older and being able to see what exactly happened during the French and Indian War, compared to what had been happening when the British started imposing taxes, that seems to be a very critical piece of Hopkins' writing. He also argues that Parliament is really out of touch with the colonies. The colonies don't have any representation in Parliament. And the reason why this is important is because he makes the, the obvious point that Westminster is literally, and I guess figuratively in politics, very, very much far away from the colonies. And the problem with what is going on in his view is that there are members of parliament in, in Westminster, in London, who are making decisions about the colonies, even though a lot of them really don't know what's going on. Like, for example, if there was some kind of Let's say let's say some riots going on in some in whatever colony you want to name. Well, the news of that won't reach Parliament in time. Let's just say the royal governors are saying we want to take some whatever action. Well, the the colonists have no representation. They can't have a say on what they think of the riots or what they think should be done to placate the rioters or whatever it is they want to do. They couldn't relay that information to parliament i mean they could speak to the royal governors they're right there but they have executive authority they can't pass legislation they can only at the very most 
manage some level of affairs. Even Hopkins is saying that in a lot of the general matters on just running a colony, those concerns are not being relayed to Westminster. So when you speak to a, a member of parliament there, he, he has no idea what's going on. He, all he can just tell everyone else is, well, I think we should pass law X because I heard from someone who was heard from someone and I saw this and I read about this in the paper. Well, that's not legislating. Legislating is not about what you read about or what you heard about. It's about being there and speaking to those constituents, hearing their concerns directly, and not have this long distance literally and figuratively, because that's exactly what was going on. So when you don't have representation, of course, you can't relay your concerns, because there's nobody there. There's nobody there to, to speak for the colonies. And it goes back to the original idea of how colonists are not second-class citizens, and if you were going to treat them as second-class citizens, that, that is exactly what the British were doing. If everyone was equal, as the British claim, they claim as everyone is the subject of uh, his majesty, then everyone in the colonies would have some kind of representation in parliament. Remember, this was written in 1764. The Sugar Act had just been passed. And he argues that the Sugar Act would not have passed with colonial representatives there. The main crux of the argument is that he believes the Sugar Act is just, it's like shooting yourself in the foot and considering that very helpful legislation. He knows that his colony of Rhode Island would not be affected very much because, according to him, and it's presumed that he understands what the economy of Rhode Island is going to be like. He was governor four times. But he says that, well, they import a lot of foreign molasses into their colony. But he knows that in other colonies, that's not the case at all. They make a lot of their own sugar. They export a lot of that. And with something like the sugar tax, it's going to very much damage a lot of local industries. And not just the industries that make sugar, but also the other producers and manufacturers who make sugar-related products. He said, how could any of this be passed if you had colonial representatives. He doesn't believe that it would have passed in Parliament had this been known. But it kind of goes back to the earlier point about how Parliament's out of touch because Parliament doesn't understand what those concerns are about production of sugar and the other issues that are affecting the colonies. It wasn't just trade. There were some other matters too. The other issue with the sugar is that not only was it was is it like shooting yourself in the foot but it was also the fact that the tax doesn't actually do anything for the colonies what that means is everyone is paying a tax there all the colonists are paying a tax on on sugar and when they pay that tax it it goes to Westminster and it never comes back and that money is never invested in like better roads and that's what Hopkins is saying, is that, well, what's the point of a tax if you're just paying the government the government doesn't do anything with it? And, and that's he said that's why people are upset, is because we want, we want to be able to tax ourselves. We want to be able to have, pay some kind of taxes. But if you're not giving any of us the money that we are paying, we are paying you to help fix a lot of issues that are happening in our colonies. We're not getting that money. So why, why should there be a tax in the first place? And the Sugar Act was exactly a representation of what 
he believed the the British thought of the colonies, which is a bunch of second class citizens who are privileged because they got their defenses during the French and Indian War, and they should uh, stop complaining. That's that's how the British are portrayed, and in many ways, that's how the Loyalists felt about the colonies, and certainly what Westminster thought of the colonies. The tax, he also argues, also affects the colonies differently. It kind of relates a little bit to what he was saying earlier about how it affects other colonies worse than it does for Rhode Island. But that exact goes back to his earlier point of saying how if you're going to impose a tax, you have to consider the concerns of your constituents. You can't just be one colony, I mean, unless you are elected by that colony or that constituency, you cannot just put a broad tax and say, well, we think that that is applicable to everybody out there. And he believes that that is really, really wrong. It's so wrong to impose a tax, not think about the consequences that it has on other constituents and under industries. Because he he and I think a lot of signers felt that Westminster is very much just in their own world. They have no, they don't care about the colonies they don't they don't allow them even a representative whether whether Westminster passes the legislation with or with with or without representatives from the colonies you know at least at the very minimum they just want representation um, and so Hopkins really makes a number of these really key points and and this is really a good transition into the big takeaways and, I, and the lessons that we can learn from Hopkins and from his writings, and not to mention that this pamphlet was huge. This is 1764. Is, that is quite early. That was before the Stamp Act. Uh, the Sugar Act, I mean, it was very much hated, but the Stamp Act was really when a lot of things really got kicked into high gear in the colonies. With Hopkins putting this out, putting that foundation, planting that seed, for people to realize that what is happening is not just and undemocratic, it's a huge, 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 huge source of influence for the signers and for the Patriot cause as a whole. Hopkins, throughout his life, he did own slaves, but he was also a big pioneer on starting anti-slavery laws. He introduced in 1774 to the Rhode Island Colonial Assembly. Uh, about the ban on importation of slavery. Now, part of it could be in the Quakers, who were becoming more predominant in Rhode Island, could be some other I mean, factors, but this really became one of the many examples of how an- the anti-slavery, the abolitionist movement, really had those seeds in place. The progress was not what we all wanted. It's still very much an issue that was often punted in government and throughout society. But nonetheless, this was a very big deal, especially when a lot of people were probably fighting for keeping that trade and to profit from it. Another example of how Hopkins really is very much a quintessential politician for Rhode Island and a statesman for his home colony. After ill health... Hopkins passes away in 1785, so he did not get to see what the nation would look like, because the Constitutional Convention wouldn't occur for another two years, but he he served as a 
a role model for Rhode Island. He was very well polished. He knew what he was saying. He had very, very strong principles. He also had a lot of good connections with those other major players like Samuel Adams, John Adams, Ben Franklin, clearly knew that he was in the right camp. And now we're going to get into some of the takeaways from Stephen Hopkins and his work. The first is, I believe that when we advocate for policies in our personal capacities, we should consider the positive and the negative effects on other constituents. I bring this up because when we advocate for policy, especially those that are on the state and and federal levels, we don't often like to think about the other constituencies, the different terrain, the different economies, the different cultures, perhaps. And, And it's not about saying that maybe our policies are necessarily wrong, but it's something to at least address. Because I've noticed that when we speak with each other about what our policies are and what our ideologies are, it's very beneficial when people are recognized for their home state or their background because it includes them in the conversation. So if someone were to advocate for a bill that were to um, to put out, let's say, tariffs, right? I'm not for or against tariffs in this scenario. I'm just saying that if that were to be a policy position, I hope that people will take a look and say, hmm, I support a tariff because such and such and such, but I also recognize that this industry is going to be hit hard or that this state known for industry X is going to be hit hard with these tariffs. You know, that sort of thing, at least at the very minimum, even if you don't convince someone from the other side to join your policy position, what Hopkins revealed when the... British were imposing taxes on various different colonies without taking into account those different constituencies. I felt that this could be a really good lesson and takeaway because oftentimes we might be very passionate about what we believe in, but we might not think a lot about the repercussions. And so just to, at the very minimum, put out the honest opinions about and the facts about how a policy can affect different constituencies, that can at least bring people together and have those important discussions about whether or not to adopt such a policy or a position. The second takeaway is that when we support or hear about a policy position, especially one that involves taxation, we should be active in inquiring where that money exactly going. That includes understanding what the tax money is funding, uh, who is getting the money, and what the accountability aspects are when it comes to ensuring that this money is going to the right places. This can be obviously very hard to do because there is so much that is behind the scenes, uh, but it's I think, beneficial for us to, in a civil manner, demand and under, try to understand where a tax policy is going. If someone is saying that we want to increase sales tax to... let's just say, from 3%. We should be asking those important questions of why the additional 2%? Why is it 2% and not an additional 1% or additional 10%? These kind of questions need to just be asked and put forward to legislators, to each other. And 
by by rethinking of how our tax money is placed, but also holding people accountable for those who don't put that responsibility out there. That is going to be very, very important, for, I think, for our larger civics. Too often, we we often tax because we might not like someone or a particular group. My classic example is really the tax on wealth. Not saying that you know wealthy people shouldn't pay taxes. It's not what I'm saying at all. But it's the fact that oftentimes you hear about people taxing wealthier people, but oftentimes not come up with an answer on where those taxes should be. And the key thing about our taxes is that they should be coming back to the taxpayers, back to building roads, to improving bridges, to improving schools, and hiring more police officers, let's just say, or a higher, or going deferring that funding and moving it to health services or something. Just a whole range of other issues that, while it can be very complicated, and taxes is a very complicated subject in itself. I hope that this takeaway from Hopkins' writing about how politicians, especially at that time, were collecting taxes but not giving that money back, we should be just be at least very much aware of where tax money is going and to be proactive in wondering where that money is going and how we can ensure that that money is spent as responsibly as possible. Finally, when it comes to meeting someone from a different constituency than yours, and particularly one that is very different, be an active listener when learning more about this individual's political views and origins. I say that because in Hopkins' writing, he specifically mentions a lot about how the British really didn't take into account the constituents' different concerns, especially when they were spread all across uh, the colonies, 13 different colonies, all with very, very different attributes. And I think this is a good lesson for all of us because oftentimes we might think that someone from a different constituency, even from the same state or from the same country, should think like us. But perhaps there are some other attributes of that person's upbringing or that person's way of life uh, or the economic conditions or the industries that are there, whatever that may be, we should be active and be the first ones to ask more questions about this person and the the area in which they come from. Ask them about the quality of life, what sort of issues that are concerning him or her. By being proactive, I hope that if more people do this, our civics, I think, is going to be more closer together, and all about being curious, having that curiosity as a basis for mutual understanding, this is going to be very, very critical to advance our civics fabric and the societal fabric of the United States of America. Thank you so much for listening to this episode about Stephen Hopkins of Rhode Island. I hope you enjoyed it. Please consider checking out the Patreon link down the show notes below. I sincerely appreciate your support in advance. Have a great rest of your day and rest of your week. And remember, a day in America always gets better when we are with our friends and fellow citizens.